So a couple of weeks ago, I began a series of messages entitled Encounters with Jesus. First, we considered uh, the woman who was caught in adultery. How many of you agree she had an encounter with Jesus, right? The woman taken in adultery. Last week, we looked at a very different kind of person, and that was Nicodemus. Nicodemus. This week, I want to focus on a third very different person, and... Um, and the reason why I said that book was a good introduction is because I wanted to start the message this way. The person that I want to focus on this morning was a wee little man. <laughs> a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus you come down for I'm going to your house today, okay? It is amazing to me. I don't ever remember teaching certain songs to my children, and yet they know them. How does that happen? Have any of you ever been amazed by that? I, 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 it seems like there's something that if you, if you step into the body of Christ, He supernaturally endows you with a volume of songs that were sung in the 1950s, and, and the kids know them, and nobody knows how they know them. Um, you know, if I never sing Father Abraham again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> Hated that song when I was a child. Never got over my dislike of that song, right? Um, uh, but you know, somehow, I don't... Kids, let me just get, if, if you're under the age of, if you're under the age of 10, how many of you know the Father Abraham song? Would you raise your hand? Do you know Father Abraham had many sons? God bless you. I hope that one got removed from the, from the, the list. I hope God's not downloading that one anymore. Okay? That's just, a, that, that song needs to go away. Um, how many remember that song? I am a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. For I have C-H-R-I-S-T in my H-E-A-R-T, and I will L-I-V-E-T-E-R-N-A-L-L-Y. That's a good one. I like that one, right? We, we'll keep that one around. We need to make sure our kids are not. All right. So who said you can't have fun, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. We've known this from the time we were wee little children, right? We're, we're familiar with the story. It's not a very politically correct song, is it? You're not allowed to call people we little men anymore. First of all, you know, they're, they're vertically challenged. They're not we little. And secondly, we're not sure if they're men anymore. So, we, so just, that, that statement is just a mess all over the place, right? It's just, it's just hard to know what to do with some of those songs. Um, but, all right, we'll set all that aside for now. And, and we've had our fun. Let's turn to Luke chapter 19. I want to read the first 10 verses, not because I don't think you know the story, but just to kind of reacquaint ourselves with it. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Luke 19. And he entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Now, there's two facts about Zacchaeus that I think everybody seems to have known from childhood. If you were raised in church and anyone did a word association with you and you said and asked you, 
tell me the first two things that come to your mind when I say the word, and then you said Zacchaeus. The first two things that would, came, that would come to most people's mind are short and tax collector. Right? Those would probably be the first two things that would come to everybody's minds. We know these two things about him. He was short by the standard of his day, and he worked as a tax collector. Now, <coughs> I don't know. I don't know if you know uh, a whole lot about the Roman system of taxation. So I, shot, I, I thought I would share with you a little bit about what it meant to be a tax collector in Zacchaeus's day. This might be the one place in this message where you learn something new. Maybe. I suspect that everything else I share after this, there will be nothing new in it for you. There might be something new in this for you. So if there is, you can say you learned something. If you already knew it, then I trust that the rest of the message, which is intended to appeal to our hearts, will be of value as the Holy Spirit intends to use it in our lives. Everyone that was living in a conquered land, living in a land that, that Rome had conquered, was expected to pay taxes to Rome. But landowners and farmers had a special system of taxes that they dealt with. Uh, so it was not the way you might expect it. It was not that Rome assigned a certain uh, tax value to a certain amount of land. It, it wasn't like that. What the Roman government had set up was this. The, the tax that Zacchaeus collected was uh, started as an auction. It was a lottery. It was an auction. The Roman government auctioned the right to tax certain areas. They auctioned it off as a way to raise money. So wealthy Romans would show up at the auction and Rome would say, whoever, whoever was in charge of the auction would say, up for bid now is the land taxation for Jericho. And a wealthy Roman would win the bid eventually. Okay? So, so the Roman province was divided up. The Roman, the Roman lands were divided up into smaller provinces, just scads of them all over the place. They would hold these auctions, and the right to tax certain areas was auctioned off to the highest bidder. The highest bidder was then required to put a down payment. They would put a down payment. They would say a certain percentage of what they bid, they had to have the cash on hand to give to Rome immediately. So Rome would immediately get a certain infusion of cash from the auction. And then that citizen was free to tax that province that he had won, was free to tax that province at whatever rate he thought he could, he could manage. They could do whatever they wanted. They could tax that place as much as they thought they could get away with. And then they owed to Rome the rest of the money they had bid, and they kept the profit for themselves. It's a great way to make money. Right? Now here's what happened. So now you, let's just say, picture it in your head, you win the bid. Now you have options. You can set up that taxation the way you want to. Some people would take the land, if the land they had was big enough, they would take it, they would subdivide it, and they would hold their own auction. And they'd do the same thing again. Well, in my province, there's three towns. I'll hold an auction and let somebody win the bid for this town, for this town, and for this town. I'll get some immediate cash back, and, and then they'll have the freedom to tax the town the way they want to. And it was a whole layered system designed to make money off taxation. And a lot of people got rich. And the landowners, well, they got it stuck to them. 
right? So what, it ha what happened was that when it got low, when you got far enough down that system, eventually you got to the people that did the actual collection. Now you can imagine this. You can imagine your land's been up for auction. It's, the bid's been won. Someone paid an enormous amount of money for it. They pay their down payment to Rome. And now they're going to not only pay Rome the rest of the money, but they're going to make a profit and they're going to take it from you. And, and the tax collector is going to show up. <laughs> and he's going to be in your town. And he's going to demand that you pay. And you're going to know that whatever the layers are, however many auctions there's been, and, and whoever has been, has been arranged to eventually collect the taxes, they're all making money off of you. All the layers. Anybody like that system? Anybody feel a little bit better about the system you have right now? Anybody amazed that Jesus didn't say anything about it? <laughs> this is crazy. What a system. What a system. Now, the kicker was that by the time you got down to the person doing the, the actual tax collecting, it needed to be somebody local that knew the area, that knew who the landowners were. And so very often what you ended up with was Rome collecting taxes, a rich Roman citizen winning an auction, and then however many layers later you got to the person that was the actual tax collector, what you ended up with was one of your fellow countrymen taking the tax money from you. And in this case, what we have is a Jewish nation that had a divine right to the land that they lived on, conquered by Rome, and they had certain Jewish citizens that, for the sake of their own wealth generation, were willing to collect taxes on behalf of Rome. Well, how do you think, how do you think they were viewed? All right, let me ask you, how many of you knew about the, the land ownership system of taxes in Rome? How many of you would say that was a little bit new to you? Are you there? You might have learned something today. You think, you think guys like Zacchaeus were popular? In a conquered land, they signed up to collect the taxes that were going to go to Rome. Right? They did it, and, and, and notice that we're told specifically that Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, that he had gotten rich off of this, that this, that this system was a system that he participated in, and that had worked out really well for him. He had done well this way. But these were not people who were, who were popular people in town. These were not people that others we're really excited to see coming. You know, it's a fascinating thing that, that, um, that Jesus, in his 12 disciples, had a zealot and a tax collector. <laughs> he had Simon the zealot, and he had Matthew the tax collector. And he had to keep these people getting along somehow. <laughs> Wild, right? All these people from these different places in life. So we have here Zacchaeus, a, a Jewish tax collector, making money for Rome, making money for a wealthy Roman citizen, and by the way, making, his money, making money himself and doing it at the expense of landowners and farmers. This is why they were hated so much. They were traitors. They were betrayers. They were willing to sell out their own people for personal gain. That's the way they were viewed. Now, what I want to share with you from this is, is really a very simple message. 
Our theme for the year is Jesus First. It's been the theme of, of uh, not always stated, but the theme of, uh, of what has driven the messages that have been shared so far this year. It sounds so simplistic. It sounds so basic, so Christianity 101-ish. But the truth is that, that, that we can't escape what it means when we really start paying attention to Jesus and his ministry. It is, it is life-altering. I mean, listen, it, it's really where the rubber meets the road in life. Our marriages are transformed if we really put Jesus first. Our homes, our children, our relationships are transformed if we really put Jesus first, if we pay attention to what it means to live out the life of Christ. Let me just divide this story up into a few little parts. First of all, when we think about the story of Zacchaeus, we need to consider the seeker, the seeker. Notice that Zacchaeus was a seeker. He wanted to find Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. He, he wanted to have an encounter with Jesus. And so he's out there looking for an opportunity to meet Jesus. Now, this idea of being a seeker is an interesting one in Scripture. Let me, let me just share with you why. In Romans chapter 3, we read these words. Listen to Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, as it is written, it's a quote, uh, a kind of a loose quote. Evidently, Paul was not a King James only guy because he, he quotes Old Testament scriptures, but not always very exactly. He seems to paraphrase them a lot of times, okay? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, but that's what he did. So it's a rough quote from an Old Testament passage. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who seeks for God. So we've kind of got this problem. We've got this problem that there's a scripture that declares that there's none that seeks after God, and yet we've got examples of people in scripture who sought after God, who were seekers who were people who were looking to find him, looking, looking for Jesus. So what does it mean? How are we to understand the fact that Scripture tells us there is none that seeks after God? Well, here's the first thing. There is no one who seeks after God independently. That is, we don't seek after God of our own accord. Let me say this as clearly as I can. If you have ever sought after God, it's because there was a God who was seeking you and doing a work in your heart that began to create in you the desire to seek after Him. At the most basic level ever, it's the fact that God revealed Himself in creation as a way to provoke you to seek after Him. He knew that you would never do it by yourself. So God has this way of inserting into his world things that have a way of getting our attention. And it's not the same thing for everybody. Anybody who's been around here for a little while knows some of the things it is for me. For me, when I see the stars, I start thinking big thoughts. That draws my attention to God. What is it for you? You listen to a lot of people, they get themselves out in the woods and say they, they see a mountain and a tree, and that's about all they need. They're having a spiritual experience. doesn't make them saved. It's God saying to them, seek me. It's God awakening their hearts. It's God's taking those first steps to awaken them to, to, the, to the need they have to seek after him. Nobody would seek God were not God first drawing us to himself, calling out to us, finding ways to attract us, wooing us, so to speak, drawing us to himself. The second thing is that, please hear this, no one who is being drawn by God is forced to come to God. That's where the seeking part comes in. 
No one seeks after God by themselves. But once God's Spirit starts to draw, there has to be something in us that willingly says, okay, God, here I come. Let me give it to you in the form of the psalm. And the psalmist says this, when your spirit said to me, seek my face, my heart said, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Right? He's the caller, I'm the responder. That's the way it is. God calls to us, God draws us, humans have to respond. But we're free to respond, or we're free not to respond. He's not going to make us. He's not going to make us. For some of us, there are, listen, there are people who live in this world interacting with the things through which God is drawing us and they're drawn to seek after God and there's other people who don't ever, don't ever pay a second thought to who he is. It's a remarkable thing to think about the things that God uses to draw people to himself. What does he use in your life? To draw you to himself. Now, pause just for a second. How many of you have ever been drawn to worship by a beautiful scene of nature? Any of you respond to music? You hear a, you hear a song, you hear music, and it's like God is calling you? Any of you respond that way? Anybody here have other forms of art that God seems to call to them in? You see a beautiful painting, you see something like that, it, it, it seems to draw you. Does anybody? I, I've shared this before, I don't want to belabor this, but I have an uncle that when, when family would sit down to eat, when a bunch of us would gather together, he would look at the food on the table and look around at the faces at the table, and it was like all of a sudden, next thing you know, he was just enraptured. He would start praying, or he would just start, he would just yell out, Does anybody here understand that God has given us this food and that God has allowed us to have this time together as a family and that none of this would be happening if it wasn't for God? That was a moment when God called to him and his heart was lifted up in praise to God. The things that God uses to draw us to himself to draw us closer. And it's not the same thing for all of us. There are differences among us. Through all, some of us tend to respond more to one thing than we do to another. Listen, some of us are really, in some ways, a little bit tougher. And, 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 and for some of us, it's not, it's not, well, let me just tell you what I'm going to say and then you can apply it. How many of you have ever been drawn to God through deep suffering and hardship? Some of us, God has to do that because we're just tough. There's nothing else that gets us. And then some of us, it's not because of that. It's just, man, when things get rough enough, it's just like, yeah, Lord, I was singing on Sunday, Lord, I need you. But this thing hits on Tuesday and all of a sudden it's like, Lord, I need you. I should have sung the song that way on Sunday. Right? You know what I mean? Lord, I need you. And all of a sudden, we're drawn. We're drawn to seek after God. We're drawn to our need of Him. We're drawn to Him. Sometimes it's the witness of creation. Sometimes it's suffering. Sometimes it's pain. Sometimes, listen to this, some people actually get drawn to God through the emptiness of wealth and success. They get enough money they have enough success, they're still not satisfied, and they're like, what's left? And they finally start seeking after God. They're like, man, this is just, there's nothing here. There's just nothing here, right? And all of a sudden, they start seeking after God. Sometimes it's through the examples and the witnesses of God's people. It's, it's being around others that causes us to, to draw closer to the Lord. I, as, I was, as I was thinking about this, I was remembering a song, um, because you all know that lyrics flow through my head like a, 
The notes I play flow through my, the notes I can't play flow through my head like a dream. Anyways, um, uh, there's a song. What have you got? The, the, the writer of the song asked the question, what have you got that I haven't got? What have you got that I haven't got more of? Is it love? Is it hate? Is it love for the human race that makes your life so much better than mine? Tell me what it is. It's the story of a man saying that he came to faith because he was looking at other people, not understanding, what do you have that I don't have? Why are you the way you are? And listen, bless God, sometimes with all of our faults, he uses us to draw people to himself. He uses the peace that others see in us, the joy that others see in us. He uses the security, the confidence, the rest in our souls that other people don't have. Please hear this. It's one of the reasons why I have kept saying to us over these last months, in a world that is just, just louder and louder and more upset and more upset, I believe that God is going to use the witness of Christians who are the non-anxious presence in times of trouble to draw people to himself. And if we get caught up in it all, we may find ourselves unwittingly damaging our witness. This world is whacked out on trouble. And it needs the witness of, of a people of peace. A people who in here are like, no, man, I go to sleep just fine. I go to sleep just fine. How do you do that? Well, Chris said it, right? Because I happen to know there's a God who's sovereign in heaven. This stuff doesn't... I mean, I'm not happy about things. There's things that I get troubled. But, but when my day is done and my head falls down on my pillow, I know that there's a God who's going to take care of it all while I'm asleep. And I don't have to worry about it. My brothers and sisters, the, the, the quality of your marriage is going to become a witness in these days. Your relationships. We have the opportunity to be a witness to the world around us in a very troubled time. Seekers. Seekers. The second thing we see, I am so sorry. I'm still trying to remember to do this. No one seeks independently of God, and no one is being drawn by God that's ever being drawn by God is forced to do it. I just get caught up. The grumblers. In this story, the next thing we see is the grumblers. I'll try to be better at this one. The grumblers. I am, I am floored by this as I read through the Gospels. The grumblers. Let me just give you a quick list. I, I'm just going to give you the scriptures. The grumblers. In all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have the same account where Jesus ate at the banquet, at a banquet hosted by Matthew, former tax collector. And when Matthew holds this banquet and Jesus shows up and he's participating at the banquet, there's another whole group of people that are standing on the sidelines going like this. He eats and drinks with publicans and sinners. For shame. For shame. Right? Can you believe Jesus eats with them? In Luke 19, of course, we see the same thing. Jesus goes into the house of Zacchaeus, and there's people standing on the sidelines going, he went into whose house? He went into Zacchaeus' house? What kind of man goes into Zacchaeus' house? There's always grumblers, right? There's always these naysayers. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, I want to take a second to read this one. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we have a prime example. When he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. I'm sorry, Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2. I, I flipped to the wrong place. Matthew 15, 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples 
transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Do you hear grumbling? Right? You don't do it the same way we do it? You don't do it the way you're supposed to? Tradition. Right? Tradition. This is the way. Right? You have this, this sense of, of people struggling when they see Jesus and the way, the way he, he gave certain freedoms to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, we see it again. All, all different contexts, slightly different words. But in Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable, uh, tells a parable about the laborers that were hired in the fields. Remember the story? Hires some of them early and tells them, here's how much I'll pay you. I'll pay you a day's wage. Partway through the day, he hires some more. And he tells them, I'll pay you what you deserve. A little later, hire some more, pay you what you deserve. And at the very end of the day, there's still a little bit of work to be done. He hires a few more, and he says, I'll pay you what's fair. And then he lines them all up at the end, and he goes to the first ones that he had hired for a day's wage, and he hands them a day's wage. They got exactly what they worked for. And then he goes to the next people, and he says, here's a day's wage. He goes further down the line. Here's a day's wage. He comes down to the last ones that only work just a little bit. Of the, and he says, here's a day's wage. And what happens? Why is it that we have such a hard time seeing other people blessed? Why is that so hard for us? Why is it that when we see somebody come under the mercy of God, that we get upset about it. That it makes us uptight. And, and Jesus in the parable has to say, what's going on with you? Didn't I give you what I told you I would give you? Why are you so upset that I'm generous? And I want to give to them a day's wage. Listen, put yourself in the story. Step into the story as best as you can. That guy that only got hired to work for one hour was able to go home and take care of his family for a day. He had a wife and kids. <laughs> he had a family to take care of. And he gets to take care of them the same way. Why? Because there's a God that's good. Because there's a God that's good. That's generous. But we find these ways to get upset. We find these ways to grumble. And of course, maybe most famously of all, there's, there's the parable of the prodigal son. Right? He runs away from home. He squanders his father's inheritance. He behaves badly. When he comes home, his dad is so excited, so excited, so relieved to see his son coming home that he throws a big party to celebrate his son has come home. But there's this older brother that's never left home. And he can't believe that this scoundrel of a younger brother is getting a party thrown in his honor. And he's mad. Dad, what are you doing? And you never gave me a party. And he's pouting. And the dad's looking at him going, this, this son of mine that was lost has been found. He's come home. It's only right that I would rejoice. It's only right that I would celebrate. Right? Listen, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm running the risk this morning that I might be the only one that needs to hear this message. And if that's the case, then God, I'll take it. But listen, when, um, 
Amanda, didn't you say that it's about getting over ourselves? But really, when we, when, when, when we step into our homes, if we could just take a second and be really honest, how many of you would say that there are times when life with you in your house might be different than people would imagine who only see you on Sundays? Is there any possibility of that? You ever struggle with a little bit of envy, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of unforgiveness, a little bit of injustice, a little bit of... You ever have a hard time with that? Did it ever come out in your marriage? Is it ever there? Listen to this. My brothers and sisters, Christian doctrine was not intended to be theory. That's why I brought this up before. Zacchaeus was not intended to be a children's story that you can answer the right questions and show everybody that you've, that you've known your Bible stories for many years. It's there to teach us something. It's there to show us something. There's more than enough grumblers in the world. And when Zacchaeus get visited by Jesus, it's, listen, it's, what are you doing, God? And that comes out, listen, the Spirit comes out in us in a lot of ways. So, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I was absent the Spirit, that nasty Spirit. But, but let, me just, let me just say it to you this way. Let me point out something that I did that I was almost immediately convicted of during this service. It's really easy to make a joke about the fact that our culture doesn't seem to know that there is such a thing as male and female. But do you realize that it is possible that someone can be walking through the doors of a church for whom that would be a struggle? I, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go any further than this. I have been... I, I don't understand why. But in the position that God has allowed me to serve in for these years, I have heard stories that would amaze you from Christians. My brothers and sisters, we are human beings. We are men, of, we are men and women of like passions. And in one form or another, the same sins and struggles that the world is experiencing are being experienced by people who sit in churches on a regular basis. And listen to this. We, I, I'm, I'm not, listen, I, my intention is not to make a politically correct statement, but it is to expose the spirit of our hearts before God. And to, and to recognize, please hear this, that, that for the person that is in a place of struggle in their lives, a joke is really not helpful. And that this is serious business. And that eternity might be at stake for some of these people. I mean, this is, this is, this is vital stuff in people's lives. And if all they know about us is that they're the, they're, they're the punchline at the end of a joke, I can assure you that that will not open their heart to us and our presentation of the gospel. So God forgive me. And if there is someone here I offended, you please forgive me. My intention is, listen is not to fall all over myself trying to be the most politically correct person in the world. I'm clear. Really, I know there's lots of factors involved, but God did make us male and female. And let me encourage everyone, if you're having a struggle, there's help. There's help. 
But boy, let's not muddy the waters unnecessarily. There's help that's actually good for us. But can we lovingly walk through life with each other? Can we lovingly help each other? Please hear this. My brothers and sisters, if it, if, if someday, if someday, it's one of our children, maybe it's the gender issue. Maybe it's their sexuality. Maybe it's some area of immorality. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's, listen, there needs to be a way that without condoning sin, we create an environment where we can encourage and edify and help each other walk through this to a place of victory in Christ. And sarcasm doesn't help us get there. It doesn't help us get there. The call, I, listen, I believe more than ever that the call of our day is a call to do two things at the same time, to stay clear-headed about what the truth is and to have hearts that are soft and tender toward people who are struggling so that we stay in a place where we can keep the gospel before them. To not let ourselves get cynical in a, in a day that is really difficult. To be able to stay open-hearted toward people. While, while being absolutely clear about what truth is. Boy, those are hard things to, to keep side by side. The third thing in this story is there's a, pen, a person who's a penitent. You know what a person is, who is penitent is? It's a person who's sorry, a person who's repenting. Listen to this. This is a remarkable thing. In the story, Zacchaeus becomes the penitent. He's the person who repents. Notice that true repentance finds an outward expression. The Zacchaeus says, Lord, if I've stolen from anyone, I'll repay it. Four times, I'll repay it. Here's the thing. We cannot atone for our sins. How many of you know that, that giving four times as much to everybody he had stolen from was not going to earn Zacchaeus heaven? No chance. No chance. But please hear this. While we can't make up for it, we have to acknowledge that true repentance finds a way of expressing itself. You ever had somebody look at you and said, I'm sorry. And you're looking at them saying, wait a second. What you did actually really hurt me. The words I'm sorry are nice, but I would like to see you be sorry. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? How many of you agree that, well, just say it this way. How many of you would agree that if you're really sorry, there ought to be some expression of that that shows that you're sorry? Listen, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. What I did really hurt you. It had to really hurt you. See, I'm sorry is not a box you check that you can hold over someone's head and say, hey, I told you I'm sorry, didn't I? I said I'm sorry. Repentance, my brothers and sisters. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says. Here's, 2 Corinthians 7 used these, uses these words. It says, you were sorrowful. It, it uses the word vindication. It uses the word indignation. It says that you were, that you were seized by fear. It uses the word longing. It uses the word zeal. It, it uses the phrase avenging of wrong. Listen to this. And it's not talking about taking vengeance upon the person that did you wrong. When it says avenging wrong, it means you, the person who did wrong, find a way to avenge it. That is, if it's possible, I'll make up for it. 
Listen, at the risk of making myself look good, that's not my intention. Years ago, I found out that early on in my ministry, I did my taxes incorrectly. Well, actually, I didn't do them incorrectly. I took them to H&R Block, and H&R Block did them incorrectly. And I found out years later that on that year, I would have owed the government money. Sounds crazy. But I called the IRS. And I said, hello, I'm a taxpayer. I'm a pastor. Years ago, H&R Block did my taxes incorrectly. And I have since become aware that I owed you about $1,500. I'm not really thrilled about paying it, but I owe it to you. And you should have heard the other end of the line. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say they don't get a whole lot of phone calls like that. And the lady, after standing around for a few minutes, said, Sir, we don't have a system for that. <laughs> well, bless God! <laughs> right? It's not like I really want... But you, you get the idea, right? It's silly. Because there's other things I haven't done that about. You can only go so far. There's only so much making up you can do. But the point is this. When God gets a hold of your heart and real repentance is present, it just, there's this need to say, it's got to come out somehow. And sometimes the person's not looking for you to do something to make up for it. It would just help to see a tear roll down your cheek when you say to them, I'm really sorry. I feel for what I did to you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Zacchaeus is that example of of a penitent, someone who does what he can in the face of his sins, not to earn salvation, but to express proper repentance. To express a proper repentance. May God give to his people the gift of a healthy repentance. It's a beautiful gift to know how to repent well. 2 Corinthians 7, I did it again. It uses those words. Then there's the Savior. The last person in the story that we need to focus on is the Savior. I, I am so, so again, every time I, I read the New Testament now, every time I see, see Jesus in interaction, these things just leap off the page to me now. In Luke 19, Passage that we read, verses 9 and 10, Jesus expresses willingness to forgive. Verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And I, I think that the best way to describe verse 10 is that this is Jesus' mission statement for life. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his mission statement. He knew why he was here. That was his purpose in life. I'm here to seek and to save that which was lost. So, when you think about Jesus' interaction, if we review real quickly, the woman taken in adultery, the question involved was Roman law versus Jewish law. Stoner for adultery, Jewish law. Roman law. You're under our rule. You're not allowed to commit capital punishment. Whose side are you on, Jesus? Ignores the question. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Ugh. Been a lot easier if you'd have just answered the question. Right? Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? I, I didn't come for that. I'm not here to burn up Samaritan villages. Seeking and saving the lost again. Whether it's Pilate, whoever it is, over and over again, Jesus does the same two things. Somebody comes to him with an issue, and Jesus turns it right around on them and exposes their hearts. Why don't you pay attention to what's inside of you? Pay attention to what's inside of you. I refer to this. 
Lord, tell my brother to divide, to divide the inheritance. Beware of greed. It's what he does over and over and over again. The issue is not the issue. Get over yourself. Your heart, that's the issue. That's the issue. It's always the issue. Put it before me. Do you hear yourself? How many times? I hope my wife hasn't counted. How many times over the course of our marriage has the most important thing to me been to make sure she understood what I was saying? Anybody else? And all of a sudden the conversation devolves into deep technicalities that are profound and completely unhelpful. Because man, the most important thing is that you understand me, not that I lay down my life for you. I think if Jesus could show up in those moments, he would look at us, me, and say something like, what are you doing? You who profess to follow me. Should you not rather suffer yourself to be wronged than to go through the charade you're going through right now? What does it profit the, a man if he proves himself right before the whole world and then loses his own soul? Or his marriage? Or the child? Or the neighbor? Or the... Right? Over and over again, Jesus exposes the heart of the person that's in front of him. And then he always, always, go your way and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Turn from your sin. He is constantly calling people back to the truth of salvation. He's rejoicing in Luke 19 that there's a man, Zacchaeus, who has come to faith. That there's a man, Zacchaeus, that has experienced salvation in his house today. While everybody else is grumbling, somebody got saved. Jesus is rejoicing. Right? Because he keeps that, that thing the main thing. How do I want to close today? Listen, it's just the, it's just the challenge. I... I I just really believe that in this day in which we're in, God wants each of us to just take a really hard, honest look at ourselves. Just take a look at yourself. So there's, you know, this story, Chris did this, the picture of the, the, the wordless book, and you quoted, Zacchaeus was a wee little man with me, and we did, I am a C, I am a CH together, and all these things from our childhood coming back. How many of you ever had your dad do to me what my dad did to me? Where when you're a little child, he's trying to make a point and teach you a lesson. And he says to you, every time you point the finger at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Right? That's a rough paraphrase of Romans chapter 2. You who say... Someone else is at fault for them. Do you not do the same thing? Are you not guilty yourself, right? It's this thing of just keep your heart before God. Keep your heart before God. And remember why you're doing it. That's what keeps you in the position of being able to be that, that representative of Jesus in the situation that brings salvation to the situation. Yes, I'm talking about people in the world that need Jesus. Yes, I'm talking about there. But listen to this. I'm also talking about bringing salvation into your marriage. I'm talking about bringing reconciliation to your children, to your family, between, between siblings. Calling them to just take a look at yourself and put your heart before Jesus. Learn to work this thing out. So that, so that the Holy Spirit can bring salvation to this situation, can infuse our house with grace, the grace that saves. Because if not, we're going to tear each other apart. Because we do that well. 
Lord, how do you bring your grace into this situation? How am I a vehicle of your grace in this situation? Listen to this, without ever compromising with evil. I'm clear. I know what evil is. But I will bring grace into an evil world. I'll bring grace into a home that needs it. Amen? Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Would you just close with me? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. We're not going to drag this out any further. But if you would just take a second and put your heart before God. Lord, if, if I'm the only one, maybe everyone else's homes, lives, and it's just blessedness. I, that would be great. I would really celebrate that. My sneaking suspicion is that your word tells us that we all kind of struggle with the same things. Lord, it, it, is, it is challenging. There's a, there's a very aggressive form of evil in our world today. And we need wisdom to know how to respond to it. Lord, in no way, in no way do we want to compromise your truth or, or water down what you have told us righteousness is. So Lord, please keep us faithful. Keep us clear. Keep us clear. Lord, I just know I've, I've, had, I've had the opportunity to have so many conversations. I know that there's a certain cutoff age where, man, issues that seem so clear in previous generations just aren't quite as clear. There has been a, a, uh, such a repetition of a message that, that it just sinks in somehow. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would keep us grounded in your truth. Lord, deeply rooted in your truth. But Lord, that, that being said, help us to do it in a way that keeps us in a place where we are not cutting people off. Lord, I ask that whether it's dealing with unbelievers that are coworkers or neighbors, or whether it's just in the spirit of our own homes, that you would deliver us from a spirit of grumbling, that you would give us the, the gift of grace, humility, Lord, that, that loves and rejoices in the good of others, and Lord, that is willing to do the hard work of walking life in uncomfortable circumstances and in difficult circumstances with people that desperately need it. Please help us, Lord. Please help us. Strengthen us for this day. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Father, I just close asking your blessing upon these, your people, Lord. Bless their homes, their marriages, their relationships with their children. Lord, keep our kids. Bring them into the kingdom. Help us as parents, Lord, to be winsome in the way we represent Christianity to our families. Help us to be winsome. Lord, help us to be vehicles through which you draw our children to the Savior and not stumbling blocks that make it difficult for them to enter the kingdom. Please help us as parents. Use us, I pray. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have serving you. Lord Jesus, we invite you by your Spirit to recreate yourself in us, your image, your likeness. Lord, we'll be grateful to you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. May the Lord's presence go with you as you leave today and uh, carry it with you throughout the week. May the Lord bless you.